Managing your law practice can be challenging. Marketing, time management, attracting clients, and all the things besides the cases that you need to do that aren't billable. Welcome to this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. This is where you'll get the information you need from expert guests and host attorney Rodney Dowell here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the On Billable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast, helping attorneys in their practice, especially solo or small firms. We're glad you could listen today on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dow, Director of the Massachusetts Law Office Management Program, offering free and confidential consultations to Massachusetts attorneys to improve their business practices. You can find one of our many articles about law office management at our Mass Lomap blog, The Law Practice Advisor, http masslomap.blogspot.com, or you can contact one of the 30-plus law practice programs operated by bar associations in the United States and Canada. And this program note to welcome our sponsor, the fine folks at Abacus Law. That's A-B-A-C-U-S-L-A-W dot com. In this show, we're talking about the keys to operating a successful solo practice. During my 18 years of practicing law, I worked at a large firm, a medium-sized firm, a partnership, and a solo practice. What I learned from this is that while a solo practice is immensely satisfying, it creates incredible organizational challenges, which can be daunting at best and overwhelming at times. With us today to help shed some light for attorneys on how to deal with these organizational challenges to create and maintain the successful solo practice is attorney Carolyn Elephant. Carolyn began her legal career in 1988 after graduating from Cornell Law School. She began her solo career in 1993 when she started her Washington, D.C.-based practice focused on energy regulatory and enforcement law, appellate work, and marine renewable energy. The adventure of starting and maintaining her solo practice has been well-documented in her nationally known blog, www.myshingle.com, where she champions the life of the solo and small firm attorney, and she has written an excellent book on how to start your solo practice, Solo by Choice. Welcome, Attorney Carolyn Elephant. Hi, how are you? Good, good. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us today. Carolyn, like me, you started your own firm after doing a number of other things. Um, What led you to start your solo practice in 1993? Well, Actually, the motivation behind starting my firm is one that many attorneys today are commonly finding that they face. I was laid off from my, or I was given notice that I was not on the partnership track at my firm, and I was told that I had six months to find another job. I looked for other positions, but I didn't have a enough enough business to move to a partnership level, and I was too senior to really restart as an associate. So... I'd always thought about starting a firm. I felt that the energy practice that I was doing was a little bit narrow, and I wanted to sample some other practice areas as well, and so I decided to start a practice. And now you've been practicing uh, on your own for almost, uh, what, 20 years? And I'm well, sure... You- um, yeah, my, my own firm I has been... Uh, it, actually, I celebrated my 16th anniversary last week oh. as a solo. 
That's great. And I'm sure you've learned a lot over those last uh, 16 years. Uh, with 2020 hindsight, uh, what what would you think would be the two or three most important things you've learned about uh, that you could pass on to attorneys who are st- first starting out and uh, really wanting to start their own practice? Well, I think starting out, I think I actually would have, I would have thought bigger. When I started my firm, I didn't really think of it as, as holding a future. I saw it as more of a, a placeholder, something that I would do for a year or two so I wouldn't have a gap on my resume and then eventually move to another firm or, you know, have children and take time off. And I think that in doing that, I really missed a greater opportunity. I think that in starting a firm, even if you're doing it as a placeholder, it doesn't hurt to think as big as you possibly can, to think that you will start a practice that down the road will have two or three attorneys or that, you know, you'll become the best energy attorney or the best bankruptcy attorney, you know, in your community or in your state or, or in the world. So I think that starting out, I would, have, I would have thought bigger about what I was doing. And I think that another thing that I might have done is to... Um, I, I guess, I, I guess, I think if I, you know, if if I had started with that framework, I think perhaps things, um, you know, things would have gone differently. Um, I think, in terms of other things, I would have done differently. I can't think of that that many. I think that when the internet came out, I mean, I did take advantage of it back in 1995. I did start a website. And I did put some resources up. I think that I would have done a little bit more at that time to exploit the power of the Internet. I still definitely have benefited from an early mover advantage, but I think that there was a lot more I could have done in those early days in terms of putting up resources and, you know, um, you know, making the site a central focus point for my practice area. So that, that might have been something I would have pressed a little bit harder on, too. So maybe a, a stronger uh, marketing presence on the Internet from the, from the beginning. Right, Although right. you have an incredible presence on the Internet now. Yes, yeah, so, and like I said, a lot of it stems from the, the early mover advantage that I had, at least with my law firm, you know, having a website in 1995 or 96. But I think that, you know, even then I was, I was a little bit intimidated. I, I had a website. I put some resources up. But I didn't really feel that I could compete with, you know, at that time um, there were, you know, commercial service providers and for-fee providers, and I didn't really see that I could create a smaller niche that would have been very manageable for myself that, you know, would have positioned me as dominant in, in a narrower area. Right. All right. And so, I mean, is that something that you would suggest in, for attorneys that are really taking the time to plan a solo practice, that they uh, focus on a, a kind of a specialized, narrow niche? Or do you think a GP practice is, is more appropriate or, or is there no one answer? a lot of different approaches. Um, when I started my firm, as I said, one of the things I wanted to do was to experiment in different practice areas. And so I took court-appointed criminal work to get time in the courtroom and to get trial experience. And eventually I started taking some employment cases and civil rights cases that you know, grew, grew out of that. So I also um, got some time in court doing civil litigation. I think that part of what you want to do in your practice depends on what your personal interests are. And if you've been working at 
a large firm for a long time doing transactional work, but you want to spend time in a courtroom, well, it may not be the, you know, in terms of um, economic stability, it may not be the smartest thing to, you know, jump out and start a litigation practice, but if it's something that you want to do, um, it, it can be worthwhile. In terms of generalization, um, generalizing versus specialization, I think that, you know, there's, there's something to be said for both. I think that if you're not sure of what you want to do, there are advantages to general, to being a general practitioner and taking different types of cases because you see which ones you enjoy the most. And that's one of the most exciting parts of starting a firm. You feel like a kid in a candy store with all these practice areas that you'd never heard of. However, I do caveat that advice by saying that if you decide to take that route, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. First of all, if you're handling a bunch of different practice areas, there are just practical considerations. If you're doing, you know, immigration and bankruptcy and divorce, you're going to be in three different courthouses, three different sets of judges, three different uh, areas of of lawyers who you need to get to know and get to market to, and eventually you find yourself spending your time running back and forth between courts and, and events instead of building up a particular area. So I would say that if you decide to be general, pick practice areas where your client base, where there's some synergy between your client base and also some coordination between the courts that you practice in. I would say also, though, even if you are a general practitioner or you decide to stay general, I think that you should start to develop some kind of a niche or specialization within that practice area to distinguish yourself. So, for example, if you are handling bankruptcy and family law cases, you know, in bankruptcy, for example, you could become a bankruptcy attorney for recently divorced parents and create that as a niche to kind of make you stand out so that people recognize you. And what the niche does, you know, people think that the niche is very limiting, but what the niche actually does is even with a specialized niche like bankruptcy for recently divorced uh, parents or for single parents, what it does is it makes you more memorable and it doesn't preclude people from sending you cases in the broader practice area of bankruptcy, but it makes you memorable in that niche and it gives you a target to market to. And so it's much easier to do the marketing when you're addressing that narrow niche or that narrow uh, segment of the population who can then spread the word about your practice more broadly to to people they know. I mean, it seems to me, and I I agree with you, if you do the, have a niche that you're marketing to, that it it allows you to focus and plan your marketing much uh, more uh, specifically and really uh, set forth a clear clear message to the people that you want to market to. Yeah, no, it's definitely like that. In fact, um, I, I, I this kind of, uh, it sounds a little bit off topic, but I, I watched the show The Biggest Loser with my daughters, and there was a contest they had two weeks ago. The contestants were in the nation's capital, and they had to give out a bunch of free tickets to people to go, you know, watch the contestants at the Washington Monument, and whoever gave out the most cards would win. So some of the contestants just went on the street and just kind of stood on the corner and giving things out. Well, there's this one guy who was a firefighter, and he was looking around. He saw that there were contestants everywhere giving their cards out, and he thought to himself, okay, where am I going to be able to give out my cards? He thought, oh, I'll go to a firehouse. Well, there's got to be a firehouse around here. So he, you know, trotted over to the firehouse, 
and he, you know, gave his cards to all the firemen there, and then they gave the cards out to other people. And so he actually didn't win the competition, but he came in, you know, second. He lost by one vote. And I thought that was a perfect example of the value of target marketing of or niche marketing. You know, rather than standing on the street corner giving out your cards to every single passerby, find the audience that's going to be receptive to you and the one that's going to listen to you and the one that's going to rave about you and market you for you. And and go after them, and it you know it it worked in that particular context. But I think it's that that concept is very adaptable to legal practice, and is a good analogy for niche marketing in the legal field. And, and it seems to me that um, I mean, kind of what this this brings up is kind of the whole issue of really kind of planning who you want to be, what you want your practice to be, and. And my advice, you know, often to attorneys is even when you're first setting up your practice, you need to set up some kind of plan to which to judge by where you're going to determine if you're, you know, if you're going along the path, if you're putting your uh, resources, limited resources in the right area. What do you tell uh, attorneys setting up their their first practice or, you know, starting a new new practice about planning where they're going and how they're going to do this? Depends on the situation. Some of the uh, attorneys who, you know, have been laid off from from their jobs and and who never thought, well, now they see it coming, but you know, never expected that it would be them. I think for the first months, few months after that happens to them, they're they're very much like they're like deer caught in the headlights, and they really don't know exactly what they want to do. And I find that in those situations, it's more important for them to just get going, to just put a business card together and come up with a couple of areas that they want to do and just get out there and start discovering this huge world of solo practice that they may never have known about. Now, on the other hand, if this is somebody who is just graduating from law school and has been searching for jobs for a long time and and hasn't been able to find anything, or, you know, again, a person who's been unemployed for six or eight months and has had time to think about things, I think in that situation, the idea of of planning makes sense. Um, I think some people tend to be natural planners. It makes them feel that they have some some order, and, and it gives them the discipline to do what they need to do. And in that situation, a formal plan where you sit down and, you know, maybe, you know, take a business template from the Small Business Association uh, Administration or, or some of the templates I have up at my site and actually sit down and fill those things out. For other people, just identifying certain practice areas and doing a little bit of research on them, you know, looking online and getting a sense of what, um, you know, what the need might be for that particular practice area um, could, could be enough. The, the other thing about, about planning is that it gives you an opportunity to interact with other people. And, you know, for example, if you have a couple of ideas about certain niches you might want to develop within a general practice area like family law or criminal law, it gives you an excuse to call other practitioners and, you know, ask if you can speak with them and tell them a little bit about your plans and get some feedback. And so it also, it's, even though you're planning for yourself, it also is helping you to market your practice by getting out there and introducing yourself to other lawyers who may refer you cases down the line or may have suggestions for you. 
Right. And ultimately, I mean, it seems to me like uh, most attorneys I know, most uh, probably 70, 80 percent of their work at least comes from lawyer referrals. So any any excuse you can get to create relationships with other attorneys and in, in, in potential referral sources is an excellent opportunity. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. And you're right. And whatever whatever excuse it takes to, to get in the door, take take advantage of it. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first started my solo practice, I really was kind of the jack of all trades. I mean, you know, take out the, the uh, trash, uh, put the stamps on the envelopes when people still actually mailed stuff and uh, and did, did everything. But what I try to tell people is as soon as possible that, you know, they should try to uh, focus on on the marketing and the law rather than doing the more uh, mundane stuff or stuff that we're not particularly good at, such as IT or bookkeeping and stuff. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I think that's excellent advice, and I think many times lawyers wait much too long to do that. I know that I knew one colleague who was swamped with cases, but he was he was even serving the complaints. He was too cheap to even hire a process <laughs> server. I was just insane. <laughs> So, um, so, yes, I think your advice is very good for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are many other people who are far more efficient at handling those tasks than, than you might be. Now, with something like um, a lot of the IP, I think that some of those issues have, have been simplified since the time that we started our practice because I think that some of the online tools like software as a service make things much easier. But, you know, if you're a tech novice, even setting up, you know, a, a Google account, if you decide to use something like that, you know, could be, could, could be overwhelming. And so, you know, hiring either a, a virtual assistant who's familiar with those tools or even, you know, a college student or, or you know, a, a friend who, who knows how to do that could be very helpful. But the other thing that I found, when I started my firm, I did the same thing that you did. I, I did most things myself, but in the summer, after I'd been practicing for about eight months, I decided to hire a quote-unquote summer associate and had him do some of the grunt work that I had done. Like, you know, at that time, you had to actually go down to the agencies to get documents. You can get things online. And I think that when you hire, when you hire somebody, you all of a sudden, if you haven't been thinking about yourself as a business or an entity, it really makes you feel that way. You're you become an employer, you become a boss. And I think that by having people work for you, it makes it also makes you think of yourself differently. Um, and I think that it's important for many solos to think of themselves in that way because I think that many times when you do everything yourself, you sort of get this, you feel almost like you're working hand-to-mouth and you're almost like an employee in your own business. But once you start to outsource or delegate or manage, you feel more like a manager and an owner. And I think that for a business to be successful, you have to have that kind of mentality. You don't want to be an employee of your own business. You want to be the owner of your your business. And that's why you started a practice. You didn't want to go from working for other people to, you know, being a slave to, to yourself. So, um, so I think that when you hire other people or outsource, it has that added benefit of forcing yourself to think of yourself as um, an owner and a, a delegator. And I think that helps people, uh, enables people to grow their business more effectively. Well, I, I think that's a that's a great point. And uh, on, on that great point, we actually need to take a short break. Uh, when we return, more about operating your solo practice with attorney and blogger Carolyn Elephant. 
Once you've made the decision to start your solo practice, be sure to read the complete startup guide from Abacus Law. Running a successful practice requires business, marketing, and technology know-how. The Complete Startup Guide provides detailed instructions on 50 essential subjects you need to know. The guide, a $79 value, is yours, Compliments of Abacus. You can obtain the guide by visiting abacuslaw.com solo. That's abacuslaw.com solo. Get your copy today. You'll be glad you did. Want to tell a national audience about your latest successful verdict or large settlement case? We'll produce a video interviewing the prevailing attorney and distribute it online on the Legal Talk Network. Put the video on your firm's website, too. Call us at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Welcome back to the On Billable Hour on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dowd, joined by attorney, author, and blogger Carolyn Elephant. We're talking about operating the successful solo firm today. Uh, Carolyn, I, th- I think that's a great uh, point. And a lot of point. I think uh, a thing that many uh, young attorneys or attorneys first starting out uh, don't do very well is, is really treat their... Um, their firm as a business. Uh, I mean, they want to practice law. They don't want to be in a business. But if you're in a solo or small firm, you really have to um, treat it as a business, which means that you have to do a lot of things, including make money. And to me, one of the critical areas in that is client selection. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, qualifying clients, people who will uh, not make your life difficult, but make your uh, business more successful. Uh, tell me what you you tell people about client selection. Well, you're you're right. It is it is very important, and if you have too many clients from hell, it can it can kill your your business pretty pretty early. Uh, one of the things I discuss in my book is uh, that one of the tests that I suggest is the uh, deal, the client who's a deal breaker versus the client who just requires some due diligence. And in the deal breaker category, I would put clients who have an axe to grind, clients who, you know, refuse to pay a retainer fee or, the, you know, whatever money you ask for them uh, to pay up front. And, and also clients who, about whom you just have a bad gut feeling, just, you know, maybe they don't look you in the eye or they, they say things that sound very suspicious or you, you catch them in multiple lies when, when they're in, their off, in your office. I think that the, the gut check, you know, lawyers being very rational like to discount that, but if, if you ask many people who have had clients from hell, they will almost invariably tell you something like, you know, I knew there was something suspicious about this guy or, you know, there was just something that bothered me, but I, I moved ahead anyway. Um, in terms of areas where you should just be diligent, I know that um, many times lawyers will say, oh, you know, don't take a client who asks about price or, you know, don't you take a client who's preoccupied with, with cost. And I think that especially in this economy, that is very poor advice. I mean, any person is going to ask how much something costs. I mean, that's the first word out of my mouth every time I call a service provider. So why shouldn't a client ask me about that? Um, I think that when a client, and, and the other thing that I've noticed too is many of the, uh, the websites that, you know, give advice on how to hire a lawyer, those sites will actually tell clients that they can negotiate fees with lawyers. So they're actually learning how to do that, you know, from, from even, even from some bar sites. 
So it's it's not like these people are, you know, coming in to haggle, but they've done due diligence on how to hire a lawyer, and that's one of the things they've learned in, in the course of their due diligence. So I think in situations where you have a client who seems concerned about cost, there are many things you can do to accommodate the client and um, and, and take the case without necessarily, you know, putting yourself in a position where, where you're not going to get paid. I think that, you know, perhaps if a client's resources are limited, you may want to, re- you know, look at the scope of work in the case, see if there are ways that you can narrow the scope of work to serve the client's goals, but come up with a more affordable budget. I think that there may be situations where perhaps you can offer a, a flat fee to clients to handle, again, a defined scope of work and in, in, enable them to, um, to hire you and to afford you. So I think that just because somebody now, – now, if you keep making offers to people, you know, if you say it's going to be 1000 they say, I can only pay 500 You say 500 They say, oh, I can only pay 250 <laughs> You know, that's, that, that's kind of a sign of somebody who you don't want. But if there's somebody who legitimately seems to have some financial problems and maybe would just like a little flexibility, maybe they would like to um, pay a retainer and then pay monthly installments or something along those lines, you know, you, you may want to see if there are things you can do to accommodate them, um, especially in this economy. Well, certainly this economy creates a lot of challenges for all of us. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we're going, we're going to have to wrap up the show. Uh, but I wonder if you could leave our listeners with uh, a few tips about becoming the lawyer they always wanted to be. Well, I think, first of all, you should have a vision of, of the lawyer that you always wanted to be. And that should be the vision that guides you through your practice, have a mission or a big picture, because that way you won't sweat the small stuff. You'll have a bigger image in place of what you want to do. And I think the second thing to do is to, you know, to be optimistic. We're living in a world where technology and social media are enabling individual lawyers to do things that, you know, even as recently as five years ago, might have taken a team, and certainly 10 years ago. And so there are so many opportunities out there, and I think that if you can just be optimistic and focus on the positives and, you know, embrace what came before you, take whatever was, you know, was was from law school or from a firm that you learned and and use what you can discard what's not necessary but really you have to have a very forward looking um uh, have a forward looking view and be optimistic because I do believe that for for lawyers who are committed to staying in the law who choose law I think their futures are bright well thank you Carolyn that's that's excellent advice and I think the the positive uh uh, approach the optimistic approach and and a strong vision of where you want to be uh, is something that everyone should take away from this uh, uh, podcast. Um, that wraps up this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. And remember, you can check out all of our shows at www.legaltalknetworks.com. I want to give a very special thanks to my friend, colleague, blogger, uh, author, Caroline Elephant. Can you tell us uh, or tell the listeners uh, where they can go to find out more about you and your thoughts on how to successfully practice the business of law? Well, my website is myshingle.com, and my book, Solo by Choice, is available either on Amazon or directly through my publisher at lawyeravenue.com. 
Great. And I would be remiss not to let uh, tell people where they can find uh, find me. Uh, it's at www.masslowmap.org or http masslowmap.blogspot.com uh, and Twitter at, at Rodney Dow, where I hope we continue this discussion in 140 characters or less. Thank you. Remember, you can also find this podcast and all Legal Talk Network shows in iTunes as well. And special thanks to our gracious sponsor, Abacus Law. We'll see you next time on the On Billable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Thanks for listening to the On Billable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast with attorney Rodney Dowell. Join us again for the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.